HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is sponsored by Kane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to Kane5.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Sandy Chilowich. And I pronounced that right. I'm excited about that. Chilowich, C-H-I-L-E-W-I-C-H.com is your company, is your last name. But uh, it it was a lot, it was a long journey, a lot of professions to actually get to the point of what you do now, uh, developing textiles and tabletops and patterns uh, alike. Um, where did this start? Where did you grow up, and what kind of tabletops and design things were you into? Well, tabletop and design was had, was not in my early childhood, and I certainly didn't have dreams of uh, designing placemats in my uh, <laughs> old age. Um, that, that would be fun, though, like in kindergarten. What do you want to do yeah. when you grow up? Make placemats. Placemat designer. Yeah, I want to be a placemat <laughs> designer. Um, so when people ask me now and you know how I got here, because they're... At, at, at the young age of let's say twenty two, they feel figure they feel that they're supposed to have it all figured out, and I look at them like they're crazy, <laughs> you know, because I certainly had no idea what I was going to do. But uh, I did have an unusual kind of geographical upbringing. I was born in uh, Westchester. Oh, where where uh, in Mount Vernon, New York? I only ask because I'm a ah, from Croton, ah, yeah, damn town. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's pretty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and at five, we moved to Holland. So I lived in Europe for five years. So my primary education and my first written language was actually Dutch, um, and uh, which it was not. Uh, I, I don't. I have no fond memories <laughs> of, of living in Holland, going to Dutch school, and I certainly, within six months of having moved back to America, 
And being in fourth grade, I wanted to repress everything yeah. that I shed had. those wooden yeah. clogs and oh, tulips. Absolutely, and that, <laughs> no more and that language, oh, that, yeah. you know. So, um, but what I was exposed to early on is, I guess, eating and like ama- having amazing food. Yeah, because we traveled all the time. So I think I was exposed to food early on, although. That certainly wasn't going to be, you know, what I thought my profession yeah. would be. And I'm sure uh, design aesthetic, too. I mean, uh, Scandinavian design is kind of, and cuisine are both at the forefront right now. So they are. Uh, you must have soaked something in then. Or you know what? I don't think it had anything to do with where I ended up <laughs> yeah. in my life. I really don't. Yeah. But, but I think, I think uh, looking at disparate cultures and I think all of that just visually the mix of stuff and the foreignness of stuff you know I became comfortable yeah yeah and where else did you travel in Europe oh god we went everywhere from Istanbul to Austria to you know the usual places um yeah we traveled everywhere yeah yeah and then coming back to the United States yeah that was a big culture shock I mean in a way, I, when my youngest kid was in first grade or something, they did a study on immigration, and they had their typical immigrant stories. My grandfather came here from Russia or whatever, and I came in and spoke about immigrating as a five-year-old, in a way, to Holland, and then immigrating back to the U.S. And uh, actually, I was definitely a showstopper. Uh, they could relate to, <laughs> you know, a five-year-old's experience. So, um, what was the question? Oh, oh. How, the reassimilation. Back. Oh, reassimilation. Yeah. It was tough, you know, you know. All I wanted to do was fit in and have friends. I mean, I, I was, you know. But the one thing I have to say, very from a very early uh, part of my life, probably soon after I moved back to the States, so around nine, ten years old, I always did artwork. I mean, I always made stuff. That was kind of what I did. Uh, when I was depressed or anxious or whatever, it was kind of a solitary outlet. So I always did artwork um, while I was trying to actually, you know, get through school, which was definitely I am the best example. I went, I was kicked out of a lot of schools. I was kind of delinquent. Uh, I never, I could barely got out of high school they wouldn't even write me a recommendation for college oh, yeah. and i went to many colleges i didn't go to many i didn't go to anything for a couple of years then i tried many schools dropped out of a ball and never got a degree yeah so i like to that to be my introduction when i speak to students that uh you know i didn't really have an education and i really mean i am ignorant i mean totally ignorant yeah because I didn't understand Dutch when I was in Dutch school. I didn't understand English when we came back. So I don't know how I got by. Yeah, but I mean, you inherently knew something to be able to form a business eventually. Oh, Um, no, no, no. Then then I got kind of smarter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, What was that point uh, where you realized, well, there's something that I want to do and this is how I do it? Well, you know, even that's not so simple. You know, I thought as I was clamoring in my early 20s, what is that that I want to do? Uh, dropping in and out of things, working here and there, um, I always did my artwork. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm a fine artist. So I sent my artwork to like a ton of New York galleries and completely ignored by most. Yeah, what mediums were you working in? Collage and sculpture. Yeah. So it was a combination of different materials. And, you know, as I said, you know, most people didn't even respond to me. Most of the others just rejected me. But this one gallery said, come on in. They were on 57th Street, and I cannot remember the name. But they were a prestigious gallery. And I go in there, and I, he takes out my portfolio, because I had sent him slides, and he turned to me, and he said it with, without the slightest 
sound of meanness, but it felt like an attack. He said, you know, your work is very commercial. Have you ever thought about being a commercial artist? <laughs> and I walked down 57th Street like in tears. Yeah, you know? for the oh, emotive artist, God, that must yeah, know, be the worst thing. Death, you know. So it's not because I listened to him, but I also found myself at the same time thinking, well, I'm making these things, you know, this kind of sculpture, why don't I try to make some jewelry? So I was designing some jewelry, and I was going to the store and selling the jewelry to the stores. And then I met somebody in the building that we lived in in NoHo. This is the late, this is in the 70s. Yeah. This is before Soho was really born. Um, and uh, we were trying to buy the building because we were all artists living in this building because it was for sale. And through that process, I met a neighbor of mine. Meanwhile, I'm designing jewelry. She was an art teacher. And we had this idea because we were looking in our closets and there were these Chinese, um, we used to buy them in, in, uh, in Chinatown. It's, it was cheap chic back then. They were the black Mary Jane's cotton shoe with a rubber sole for three dollars and ninety nine cents yeah. in Chinatown. I think they still sell those at Pearl River. Yeah. Where well say that at again? Pearl River. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. they yeah. sell them. Well back then, you know, you had you know, you were they were three ninety nine and we thought, God, these would be so cool if they came in colors and we bleached them out one night at, when we were like drunk after a meeting. <laughs> Uh, one of us had chloris, one of us had Tintex, and we said, let's go, back there. let's go back down there and get some more of these, which we did. I had an appointment with Vogue magazine to show them my jewelry, and I, we decided to bring the shoes in. It was like drop dead. This was the editor of Vogue, Grace Mirabella, uh, who was the one before Anna Wintour. She was there for years, and between Diana Vreeland and Anna Wintour was, was um, Grace Mirabella. I mean, she walked into the room and she said, Oh, my God, we're going to Sardinia on Monday. This is Friday. We need all of these things that you brought in size 10 for yeah. models. <laughs> so we're thinking, can you do it? Yeah, yeah, we can do it. We had no idea like what she was talking about. We go to Chinatown, and we're scrambling to try to find size 10 in Chinatown. So we're buying these crates of shoes where there's one size 10, and the rest are like five and a half, four <laughs> and a half, three and a half. Um, and we spent the weekend... Uh, dyeing up these shoes and we came in uh, Monday morning we were hair drying it and off they went to Sardinia and they gave us two pages in Vogue Ooh, magazine yeah. saying well what's the name of your company and who do you sell to meanwhile Kathy's working full time as a teacher you know I'm, I, you know, we didn't know what we were doing but that's the, my story is we didn't know what we were doing and we had no plan but we, got, we went from making these shoes, uh, and in my loft, we set up washing machines. We, had, we were working all night long. We started to import shoes in white directly from China because they wore white for funerals and black for every day. So at least we didn't have to bleach out the black. We bought them in white. We brought in 20,000 of these shoes, and in my own, in our, my own loft, we're like dying these up and shipping them to Macy's and Bergdorf Goodman. Shoes that were three ninety nine were now sixteen dollars because we had to strip them down, dye them, package them, put new clips on them. Anyway, we got massive amounts of press. Again, we're not making a dime, but we're getting great press and sales are good. But we have all this inventory, and we decided all the editors were saying, "What else do you do?" So we went down to Orchard Street and bought things that were never available in color, um, gloves and and other accessories and one of them were these cotton nurse's stockings and we said oh let, let's offer these in lots of colors and we got I mean pages of Mademoiselle and Glamour and Vogue all these magazines showing all this so we got really interested in these stockings and because all these women this is now back in the late 70s 
there were no cotton tights out there. There were no natural fiber tights. They just had dan skin, you know, nylon tights. And we, we, were the, we started to focus in, to make a really long story short, on the fact that, hey, there was a market here for natural fiber stretch tights. And slowly but surely, the shoes disappeared, and we became a hosiery company because yeah. there was nobody in that field doing a great job. So, so Hugh was born. Hugh was born without any plan. Um, but as we went along, we learned very, very quickly all the mistakes we were making and how to correct them. Um, so we started Hugh in 1978. Um, you and Kathy Me and Kathy Moskal. And um, it was uh, quite a journey uh, because we started, and when we sold the company, we were doing $40 million. And at the beginning, I mean, we really, really were in total neophytes. Yeah. And... So we sold it in 1991, stayed on for a couple of years uh, to help them with the transition, and then we left. Um, But I had, you know, a vast amount of experience with starting something from scratch. Yeah. But also in design and packaging and merchandise now, too. Yes, all of those things. I mean, I had such an education. However, when I sold, again, I was back at, I don't know what I want to do, Um I knew I wanted to do something, and I decided to um, to kind of create some of the ideas I had and bring it to as close to real-life prototype as possible so that I could kind of gauge whether or not this had, um, you know, commercial potential. I mean, one thing I realized very early on at Hugh was that I didn't want to be an artist. I really didn't. I really liked the commercial aspect. Of, of design and the business of design. That's really my passion. I'm not interested in making one thing. And I also, I, I mean, I just said this somewhere that what I love is the interchange between me and an audience. And it's kind of keeping my integrity, uh, my design integrity, but also adapting and compromising to a degree so that it is commercially successful. And it's that kind of striving to balance those two when I hit that right note is when I'm happiest you know that's my goal well I mean you think of something like shoes or hosiery or Chilowich now tabletops placemats um, they're also modular Um, you're giving somebody a piece of uh, their larger self or you know a larger picture um, and letting them interpret from this base product that's a nice way to look at it yeah but I mean it's kind of an amazing building block to give somebody and uh, I mean you created these building blocks and these businesses from nothing and and it must be amazing to walk into a space that uses your product or see someone walking down the street still wearing your hosiery um, and seeing what else they dress with or how it's just a part it's just a part of the pole picture you know I've never looked at it like that and in fact the placemats I I often wonder there's kind of people have this passion for these placemats I mean there's like a no you know not everybody but like there's like this such a passion and I think it's because of what you're saying it's a little piece of like art or textile that they can play with um, and let it work within their home and stuff that's very true yeah well I remember the first time I actually saw one of your products on on a table Um, it was at Room for Dessert uh, that opened up I think in 2004 2005 down in Soho um, Chef Will Goldfarb outfitted the whole place I think almost completely with Chilowich all the 
you know, placemats, and I looked at this material. Was that the first time you saw that? I think so, I yeah, I yeah. I mean, I don't think I had an eye for design yeah. or even understood what kind of food and design world I was in until then. Right. But seeing this, it was kind of like being let in on a secret. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it was cool seeing something and this material that you use and the process that you make it, I just couldn't even visualize how it was done. Right, um, right. Kind of like how Will's desserts were at that restaurant. Right, right. But, I mean, the process, the materials uh, for Chilowich came out of hosiery. Mm, kind of. Yeah. I mean, the, the transition period between selling Hue and starting and, and what I'm doing now, there was a little brief couple of years in between First, a couple of years to figure out what I was going to do, and then a couple of years to actually do that transition, which were the ray bowls, and that was uh, that was actually using hosiery in a way. It's a stretch lycra mesh and stretching it over these wire frames, and I created a concavity, so it became a receptor and a container by simply pulling the stretch material down in the center, and that simple mechanism that is like looks like a complete no-brainer actually nobody had done it before and i got all these utility patents and things that you can't you can't you can get design patents but getting mechanical patents and for something that simple it's kind of crazy but it was i was using hosiery material again it wasn't conscious i just found myself attracted to stretchy materials and then realized <laughs> in retrospect that's why um but it was from the ray bowls which i uh, designed and then it was moma that introduced them. Um, that I got a taste now of the design world. I had been in the fashion world up until then. And I knew also when I sold to you, I didn't really want to be in fashion anymore. I kind of, you know, when I always say to people, like when I, when I used to open the New York Times, the magazine section way years back, I would always go to the home section before I would go to fashion. I, I just like that better. So, Anyway, so the bowls are going along, and um, I was looking for other materials, which I started to play with to incorporate into this kind of container structure. Um, And one of them, I had this idea for doing this picnic basket, which is where I found the manufacturer for this um, woven vinyl material, which um, was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I've become, you you know, it's been a love affair with this company. Um, which is a very large company, but it's the woman that owns it and, you know, took it over from her dad who founded it. Um, she's about my age. We're from different worlds, but there was a great bond. And it's really a big company. They do window screening. I mean, they're, they're big. Yeah. I mean, um, vinyl, I think of sidings of houses. And, right. You know. Well, but this is soft yeah, vinyl. Yeah, yeah. This is woven vinyl. Yeah. But they also do window screen, metal window screening yeah. and stuff. They're like commodity stuff. But anyway, so I kind of, I, I discovered the material, I went to their plant and I just became kind of, um, I fell in love with what, you know, what I love about this material is aside from the design potential of the material, because there's so many things about it that that, uh, provide this kind of unlimited uh, design potential, is its functionality, which is what captivated me, because it's really hard to get those things together. I mean, I love beautiful things. We all love, you know, uh, precious, expensive, limited, hard to ha- maintain stuff. But this was, and I, I do think when people see the placemat, what one of the placemats, one of the reasons why it's so successful is that when you look at it, you can tell I can clean it. 
you know, and it's there's something about that instant recognition that's very, yeah. very durable, special. washable, yeah. utilitarian. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break okay. on that and come back uh, and see how woven vinyl launched Chilowich okay. onto the top tables in New York. Okay. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. Vineyard and Winery are proud to support Heritage Radio Network, the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to keen5.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Sandy Chilowich. Tabletops. Yeah. Placemats. Came from woven vinyl. Finding this thing in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right. of all places. Right, right. Having this relationship with this manufacturer. Um, initially, from the concept of Ray Bowles. How did it transition to placemats? Because, like we were joking before, that's never something you grow up saying. Right. I want to be a placemat designer. Right. Right. Well, when I when I found the material, um, it it just seemed like I don't know how it occurred to me. It just seemed like you know it because of its functionality, because it was so instantly understandable that this material could you could wash it so easily. I don't know. I don't know how it came to me that, hey, this could be a great placemat. Because at the same time as the placemats, I also was making bags with the material. I was making, I tried shoes with them. I tried <laughs> to play with a million different things. Yeah. That placemat just somehow by trial and error, occur, you know, appeared like, hey, this is like really good. Yeah. And, but I was also selling bags at the time. I was trying to back the material to make floor mats. And then, you know, it was around this time that my husband, who's an architect, had his own practice. I was in a run one room studio, and that's the other thing. Here I was, I don't know, in my forties, like forty. I was probably forty four, forty six, I think. And here I was starting completely over from scratch, and I love that. I mean, I wonder what's going to happen when if I ever sell this company. You know, will I be alive so that I can start something yeah. else from scratch? But anyway, so. Um, you know, and then it, it, it just like it hue, you know, I knew more than I did then when I started, but they also, you know, it's like I had to sell to stores, I had to go to trade shows, but the food related part, what happened was, um, a caterer in New York, her name is Susan Holland, she's like a very, I mean, she is, you know, just, um, uh, a gorgeous kind of event designer, and uh, extremely aesthetic. And she found the product at one of the trade shows and said, you know, I'd like to use this um, as tray liners when I'm doing events. So she, we sold her some stuff for that. And I, kept, I saw it maybe at another show. And she recommended it 
to uh, Tom Colicchio or the woman that manages um, his his her name is Katie. When he had just he hadn't opened his first restaurant, craft. Yeah, craft. Yeah. Um, she mentioned to her, you know, you should think about these placemats for the restaurant, and they. I had never thought of it. Yeah. Um, it was just, that just happened. And so they ordered the placemats for the restaurant. And it was a sensation. I mean, the New York Times did this wonderful piece right around then where they talked about the placemats. You know, where did this come from? And uh, they interviewed uh, uh, a Katie or Tom, I don't know. And they said when they opened it, and I forget the name of the designer that did that first restaurant, um... I just drew a blank, that they were complaining that people would come in and they wouldn't comment on the fact that they spent God knows how many millions <laughs> on it. But they yeah. just said, where, so where do you get these placemats? <laughs> so that kind of launched me into the hospitality world. Yeah. And I didn't have to do anything after that in terms of that. I mean, restaurant, it just spread like fire. Yeah. Like, oh my God, this is a functional way to cover. And also it coincided, I think, with, I think, what was happening. It used to be that, you know, it was linen tablecloths that defined fine dining, where now people start to expose the table. And so the placemats kind of fit right into that. Yeah. So it was you weren't covering an ugly table. You were actually exposing a beautiful one. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you're in Terrace 5 at the MoMA, as well as the yeah. MoMA, and we'll discuss that in a yeah. second. Yeah. Um, other restaurants, Le Anima in London, um, were some of your first clients. Yeah. Um, how many restaurants do you think you sell oh to? Oh, my God. Um, I don't know. Yeah. All over the world? Yeah. And when you think about, like, let's say the Four Seasons and all the Four Seasons, like, on the room service trays and stuff, like a thousand maybe? Wow. Yeah. I'm just, I have no idea. So, I, I mean, do you go <laughs> I'm not going to fact check, <laughs> yeah, are you? Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. no, no, no. I throw okay. out numbers. I have a default number. I'd say <laughs> okay. 20 there. Okay, okay, good. So your, your thousands are much better <laughs> than mine. Um do you eat out a lot in New York? I mean, do you go into restaurants and see your wares on the table? I do, I do. Um, it's always fabulous to kind of be surprised like that because uh, there are people that copy us, um, which at first was like an absolutely nauseating. Oh, I, you know. I always thought that was the imitation flattery yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who, does bullshit. anyone really believe no, that? I not mean, at all. it's horrible. People used to say that to me. Um, so, especially, I mean, and all the copies are made out of Asia, and, you know, we have suits going on everywhere, and uh, legal bills, and sometimes we just walk away, it's just not worth it. But um, when I travel, uh, especially in Asia, or whatever, you can see some copies, which is not a, you know, it's a very, especially if the property is gorgeous, and they don't even know. I mean, they don't know that there was an original. Yeah. And that there is an authentic author here, you know. Um, but in general, the the if it's a really nice restaurant, they've got placemats. It'll be our placemats, and that's yeah, it's a very very satisfying. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So uh, you were just on the road, um, I think, at the houseware shows in Chicago. But prior to that, were you in Asia? Yes, um, I was just in Asia. Yeah, yeah. Looking oh, yeah. at new textiles, looking no, at new patterns. I wish, I yeah. wish. You know, this was more of a sales kind of press junk. Yeah, you yeah. Know, um, so, no, it was Beijing, uh, Seoul, uh, uh, Taipei, and Tokyo. But when you eat out at these places and maybe even see your placemats in some of these restaurants, uh, do you see them interact with them differently? I mean, are placemats different throughout the world? Uh, no. I think what I love about it is how unifying it is. You know, it's... Who would think, you know, placemats could really 
bring the world together. You know, I'm at these tra- at trade show, international trade shows. You know, and I, I mean, I, I really, I, I cried the first time this happened when we do we do this international show in Germany twice a year. And I'm standing there, and there must be like eight languages going on, you know, with placemats flying. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like, it's universal. And, and I think it's because you look at it and you get it. Yeah. And I, there is something about that that I've, I am most proud of, that it's really, you don't need an, any explanation. Yeah. And it's very clear. It was funny. I think I was going to use the word utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which it is, but I like unifying that much more. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's some kind of more iconic thing than yeah. just, you know, the trudges of every day. Utilitarian feels kind yeah, of pedestrian yeah, yeah. sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. So y- you took something that was maybe pedestrian and rose it to yes. that aesthetic level. Yes. Um, do you look at other things on the table and say, I want to change that, I want to change that? Um. I don't know if it's like, do I look at other things on the table? Honestly, it's more like I look at processes that I feel have um, potential. It's underutilized. Uh, so it's more the, the it's more uh, process manufacturing processes that really, really excite me. Yeah. Um, and kind of breakthroughs where you know I'll find a process that is like so pedestrian and so ugly. Uh, and then actually make it look beautiful by changing it. Um, so it's more processes. Of course, what happens when you're in business, and that's one of the you know, challenges um, of being in the business of design, is that you can't do all. You, I mean, I, might ha- I have a lot of ideas that are outside of the table, but I can't do that. You yeah. know? If I want to survive and make, and make a living doing what I love to do or staying in the design world then I have to kind of restrict myself to some degree. But um, I am thinking of ways to expand, uh, but it would revolve around entertaining yeah. and food Yeah. Uh, to, to may have it make sense. I, I think it's fascinating what you just said because it is so analogous to what I've been learning uh, lately about uh, food and uh, larger industries that have to have a protocol in place to be able to serve specific foods right. um, that... You can't just make this beautiful one-off dish and that be, I mean, you can, and and that be so mind-blowingly good and that it changes the rest of cuisine as we know it. Sometimes you can't it's, do that? I mean, you can and you can't, but sometimes it's these processes that we feel are like rote and mundane, and by tweaking those and making those better, right, and right. that that's sometimes a bigger effect than just... You know what? I feel designing within constraints is where you're the most creative. I've always felt that way. Yeah. If you tell me you can do whatever you want, I'm paralyzed completely. Yeah. And the more restricted you, you make it, the more creative I can be. Yeah. yeah. So, no, yeah. it's just a fascinating uh, corollary to yeah, yeah. how but I, I was feel thinking about what, what you were saying, though, that does a restaurant, you know, a, a restaurant, their cuisine is kind of their brand. So I can see that they maybe are they restricted in the way like they can't start making chili now, even though they've got like a great, you know, a fabulous chili idea if their restaurant is is country French. Right. So kind of they can't do that probably either. Yeah, I guess it's hard because you have to do like an interpretive chili, maybe something resonant of whatever country French cassoulet slash chili. Right. Make it look like steak tartare. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Something. But I mean, that that's how you kind of reinvented yourself. That's right. That's right. 
kind and of with the, within those constraints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you talk about food and entertaining and new ideas uh, of design and processes within that. Are you allowed to preview some of those ideas that you want to launch? Um, well, I think probably the most exciting thing for me, but it's so, in a way, the opposite of uh, what I've been saying to some degree. Um, I've I've been very, uh, let me say, kind of inspired to make a product <clears throat> that was kind of universally accepted and accessibly priced. It, granted, it's on the higher higher end spectrum of price points, but it's still affordable because even the most expensive placement is twenty dollars. You, you know. And I'm at the top of the line. You know, that's not so bad in the grand scheme of things, whereas most of the placemats are more like, more like 10, 12. But, you know, I've been, I've been loving working with those constraints, and I will continue to work with those constraints. But I realize I really want to try to make something where I'm not thinking about price point at all. Yeah. I'm just going to make what I absolutely want to make. And you know what? I earned that. I mean, I can do that now after, like, doing this for, you know, 15 years. And I'm designing a line that is absolutely gorgeous. And all of it, I think about functionality, because none of it's going to have to get dry cleaned, and none of it's going to have to be, um, you know, it won't be an expensive process to clean it, but it's very luxurious, it's going to be very expensive, um, but with no compromise. And that's going to be a very interesting introduction with probably a different sub-name. Um, and I think that restaurants are going to love it. Yeah. Uh, because it distinguishes them from all the other en- restaurants. And um, per- personally, it's the most exciting thing I'm doing Excellent. right now. And yeah. I, I like the elusive, elusiveness of, of this discussion um, because I'm so excited to know when it comes out and what it will be. Um, when is this product I'll launch this um, uh, next fall. Yeah, so we're... so. No, fall thirteen. Yeah. When is that? Like, like. Yeah, that's next yeah. fall. Yeah, yeah next yeah. fall. Yeah. I, I don't know what yeah. day it is. Today. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tuesday. When, when, when I air my show. <laughs> right. um, but I can't wait to see how you're going to reinvent the tabletop or yeah. the placemat again. Um, one thing I kind of gloss over is some shapes, colors, patterns that you use: uh, Kyoto, Kono, Dahlia, Cowhide, Leaf. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are textures or, or colors or patterns that you use on your placemats. Obviously, inspired by nature and uh, food and culture. Um, is that how you draw inspiration for these things? Um, you know, uh, I do think that I am inspired by history and textiles through history, although I'm hardly academically educated in that arena. Uh, but I think I've absorbed a lot imagery-wise um, and and nature. Um, but it's everything. Honestly, I, I, I think that I'm more inspired by, you know, the dirty hem of somebody's skirt in a, in a subway, in all honesty, and, like, somehow, like, the color that makes than I am about uh, going to a palace and looking at... at uh, at fabrics behind a, a case. So, 
It could be anything. Again, I mean, all the things that you mentioned, they're not all woven vinyl. When you mentioned Dahlia, yeah. that's an example of finding a process that uh, used to make the ugliest stuff imaginable. <laughs> it was the stuff your great-grandmother used to make. It used to have doilies out of plastic. I mean, it was really god-awful ugly. And I had samples of this kind of crap in my studio for years. And it hit me that I could use that process and make it's molded. It's a molding process. And, and I went to Taiwan. It took me like a year you know, to get them to do what I was asking because it was unfathomable to them to make black, you know, modern laces and dots. Anyway, I'm so proud of that, of taking that process and transforming it so it's almost unrecognized. It is unrecognizable. You'd never know it was the same process. So there is an example. I mean, it's not just woven vinyl, but again, this product, you just rinse it off. Yeah. You know, that it has to have that. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I think... Again, so analogous to just thinking about food, reinterpreting um, something as you know simple and something that we just gloss over as the placemat to make it so engaging right. again is, is a right. fantastic thing and must be well, thank uh, you. great to know that that niche has opened up the world to you. Thank you. And you know, finally making your grandma's doilies sheep chic <laughs> again. Um, right. Thank you again, Sandy, okay, for being on Chillowitch. Chil- yep. Dot com and fall 2013 for a very interesting new product. Okay. I'll, I'll bring I'll me be, back. Yeah, I'll be yeah. watching okay. for that, and definitely we'll have you okay. back. Okay. Uh, you've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. at heritage underscore radio. You can email us at info, info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.